0: Hello, and welcome back to the podcast, Guinea Pig Ship. Today, we'll be reading chapter number four, entitled The Ships of Montebello. This is another uh, shorter chapter, but I hope you enjoy nonetheless. Diana returned to Montebello on the 14th of May, ready and so far as she would ever be for the trials that lay ahead. There was nothing much to see except a few ships with seabirds wheeling above. And Trimalee was a tower, a skeletal structure rather like one of the pylons that marched so disfiguringly across the English countryside. At the top of the tower was a bulge of some sort that was taken to be the bomb itself, which, viewed at a range of a mile or so, would be the closest we would ever come to such a thing. All was ready, it would only take a word from someone in authority, and the whole awesome business would be set in train. Of this terrifying weapon whose power we were about to witness, we knew virtually nothing, We had good reason to be apprehensive, afraid even, but curious this was not the case. Or at least everyone affected a remarkable degree of equanimity. This thing wasn't going to hurt us, we knew, and yet, and yet, it was the same device that only a few years earlier had destroyed two major cities and killed tens of thousands of people, and they were going to explode one a few miles away from us. Well, sailors don't care, it is said, and we did our best to pretend that we didn't. This was the second nuclear test to take place at Montebello. Britain's first atomic bomb was detonated there in Operation Hurricane on the 3rd of October 1952. That test is of particular interest to the Royal Navy, since it involved a redundant frigate of the river class, HMS Plym, called after the river in which, Dian- in which stands Diana's home port of Plymouth. So just um, put a note here. So the naval barracks and dockyard are in Devonport, once administered as a separate township, but sailors like local people... ...tend not to distinguish between Plymouth and Devonport. Um, So called after the river on which stands Diana's home port of Plymouth... ...she was a vessel that had had given sterling service as a convoy escort during World War II. Like her many sister ships, however, there was no further use for her once the war was over. There were large numbers of these minor escort vessels that had no part to play in Britain's peacetime navy... The slow and dreary but highly perilous Atlantic convoys to be shepherded between Liverpool or the Clyde and Halifax, Nova Scotia, had become a thing of the past in May 1945. Merchant Navy skippers were free once again to plot their own courses across the Great Ocean without the tiresome limitations imposed upon them by the Navy, and most of these little escort ships went to the breakers' yard or were sold off to foreign navies. Indeed, Plym was fortunate to have survived to 1952, she was brought to the test site and anchored immediately offshore, the bomb being placed inside the ship. The subsequent explosion vaporized the little frigate, which now occupies a minor niche in naval history. There is considerable pathos attached attaching to the fate of HMS Plym, Though no more than a few hundred tons of iron, she was an elegant little ship, and, like most ships, had about her a certain character and charm. Those who served in her during her nine years of life will have formed an attachment to her, just as we Dianas felt close to our ship. Ships frequently take on characteristics that liken them to people, and the relationship of men to ship can often be one of real affection. It is not simply the ship, of course, that the men love. It is not steel plates, iron decks, gun mountings, and masts alone, for which they feel affection, nor the trimness of her lines and her dash of the water at high speed, It is their companions, their shipmates, united as a close group within the confines of their temporary home, that can make a ship special in the eyes of her men. It is the bond of a chosen group sharing an adventure, danger, and achievement that makes me and most of my shipmates remember Diana as something special and irreplaceable in our lives. 56 years have passed since we joined Diana to do the things we did. My memories of the ship and crew are as fresh now as they were the day I left her in August 1957, as indeed they appeared to be for many of my comrades who I still meet and who can still talk with complete recall about minor and insignificant events from all those years ago. I do not feel like that about every ship I served on. One particular ship I joined a year after leaving Diana, a great ugly submarine depot ship, has no place at all in my heart and in my affectionate memories. Life aboard that ship was dull, routine, and endlessly monotonous. It was peopled by men for whom life held out very little as long as they were still serving aboard her. As a submarine depot depot ship, her function was concerned with the maintenance of a flotilla of submarines. The ship's crew, however, were not submariners and were concerned only with the routine functions of a large, bulky ship that rarely went anywhere and did not even look attractive to the eye of a seaman. This tedium was relieved only briefly and occasionally by a visit to some distant port, such as Casablanca and New London, Connecticut. We also had a small brass band run by a splendid Royal Marine band sergeant called Jimmy Green. His name, of course, was not Jimmy. This is simply a nickname. All men in the Navy called Green are addressed and referred to as Jimmy. He was a cheerful man and a talented musician who could play the cornet with one hand while conducting the band with the other. The band for me was a little relief from the tedium. To be fair to the officers who, like the ship's company, would probably have wished themselves elsewhere, some attempts were made to lighten the gloom. We went off to the rifle range for several days to complete... Uh, the annual musketry course, and we carried out respirator tests. This was the occasion of considerable amusement requiring as it did the respirator, or gas mask, as sailors insist on calling it, to be tested under realistic conditions. For this, a gas chamber was needed. We improvised by using the captain's garage, and so, with unerring naval logic, since I was the captain's coxswain, who ferried him around the Clyde in his motorboat, though I had nothing to do with his car and could not drive it, It was deemed that I should be in charge of the gas chamber. Men carrying their gas masks were brought in batches to the garage and ordered inside where able seaman Charlie Carey, the gunner's yeoman, had assembled a small burner on which he set light to several pellets of tear gas. His gas pellets burning nicely, Charlie would hasten out the garage while I closed the door on those within. Are you feeling the gas? I would shout through the door. Yes, we fucking well are, was a typical response, an outbreak of coughing confirming the truth of what they were telling me. "'Put on your respirators and adjust the straps so that you feel no effects of the gas,' I would say, an order they obeyed with alacrity. After a few minutes, I would ask, "'Has anyone any problems? Are all gas masks working satisfactorily?' A series of muffled voices from the garage would assure me that they were. My next order was the vital one. "'Take off your gas masks,' I would say, which they did, though reluctantly. "'Are you going to let us out?' several anguished voices would ask. "'When you have had some experience of the gas,' I would reply. Coughing and shouting would confirm that they had indeed had some of the gas, and I would tell Charlie to open the door to allow them to dash out and turn towards the southwest wind for reviving gulps of fresh air. One batch of victims included most of the ship's football team, of which Charlie and I were members. We put them through the usual drill and then ordered them to remove their respirators. At this point, however, I kept the door firmly closed for just a little longer than normal. Let us out, you Nazi bastard! Marshall, you're a bloody fascist! and similar cries emanated from my chums in the gas chamber, they emerged both weeping and laughing and threatening dire retribution. This ship and her submarine flotilla were based in the Garlock, north of the Clyde. The surrounding county was lovely, which for most of the men did little to relieve the wearisome situation to which they had been thrust. Fortunately, I lived ashore with my wife, Mary, in an apartment close by that was part of a large house built in the Scottish baronial style, and I did not have to endure life outside normal working hours aboard a ship for which I cared so little. Mary and I had just suffered the loss of our first child, a boy provisionally called John, who died at birth from a condition of gross kidney abnormality that may well have been due to my exposure to radiation, radioactive fallout at Montebello. My draft to this ship, instead of some distant seagoing ship, at least gave us the chance to be together during this difficult time." To destroy or damage one of your own ships, as happened to Plym at Montebello, even though she was now no longer wanted, would seem an act of treachery, like stabbing a brother in the back. The manner of Plym's destruction appears particularly obscene. The Navy had often used redundant ships as targets, for guns, torpedoes, bombs, and in more recent times guided missiles, but to use her as a testbed for a nuclear weapon that would cause her not to merely sink, a noble enough fate for any ship, but to dematerialize, reduced to no more than minute particles by an explosive power that neither ship nor man could ever hope to survive, is a fate unthinkable. Plim was built by the Smith's Dock Company at South, Bank, at South Bank on Tees and launched on 4th of February 1943. She was commissioned into the Royal Navy on the 16th of May that year and given the pennant number K271. Like all her class, she was small, dainty almost, displacing a mere 1,370 tons, armed with twin 4-inch guns forward, up to uh, 10-20mm, Oerlikon close-range anti-aircraft guns, a hedgehog anti-submarine mortar, firing a pattern of 24 bombs mounted forward, and depth charges aft, of which she could carry 150. Only two years of the war remained when Plym came into service, but she played a full part in the Atlantic convoy system for which she was designed. In 1944, along with her sister ships Ban, Teviot, and Trent, she escorted convoy WS-33 to South Africa on the first leg of its journey, carrying critical reinforcements and supplies for the Burma campaign. Though the, direct through, though the direct route through the Mediterranean would have been shorter, it might also have been more dangerous, and therefore the long way down the Atlantic around the Cape of Good Hope, shepherded by trusty little frigates such as Plym and her sisters, was much to be preferred. In October 1952, she was brought into the lagoon at Montebello and anchored, not far from the island of Trimoli, in 12 meters of water around 40 feet. The nuclear device inside her hull was located some 6 feet below the waterline. The bomb was of 25 kilotons, not quite double the power of the Hiroshima bomb, and its explosion left in the bed of the lagoon a crater almost 20 feet deep and more than 300 yards across. It would have been just as simple, more so possibly, to have detonated a bomb ashore on Trimoli or in one of the other islands, but a possibility had occurred to the British government that was to be tested, to some extent at least, by placing the bomb inside a ship in shallow water. The question was, what would the outcome if an enemy were to bring a nuclear device inside a ship and detonate it in a British harbor, Liverpool, London, Southampton, or some other important seaport? It was hoped that by choosing this form of detonation, some answers would be provided. What was learned has never been revealed nor any of the preventative measures that might've been devised as a result of this test. No such attack has ever been made, of course, but the possibility remains, perhaps more so in the wave of terrorism experienced in the 21st century. Furthermore, such an attack could be made by men with no regard for their own lives, men for whom suicide and a martyr's passage to paradise would be regarded as highly desirable. Plym, just one of the many river-class ships, was very unlucky to be chosen for this abject mission. In total, 151 of these trim frigates were built, most of which served in the Royal Navy, though some went to Commonwealth and Allied navies. They were a mere 283 feet in length, 36.5 feet feet in the beam, and carried a complement of 107 officers and men. With a top speed of 20 knots, they were fully capable, with their plentiful armament of dealing with the enemy submarines they were built to combat, and putting up a fair rate of anti-aircraft fire, both with the twin 4-inch and the numerous 20-millimeter Orlicons. Furthermore, they were economical, with full tanks, it was, in theory, possible for a river class to leave the Mersey or the Clyde, escorting a convoy to Halifax, Nova Scotia, or New York, and return without refueling. Ship design and armament, of course, progressed very rapidly, particularly in wartime, and the brisk, efficient little river class ships were produced for only three years. The first of them came off the slipway in 1941. By 1944, they had been superseded by the Locke class, which was, in turn, quickly followed by the Bay class, a type with which I was closely familiar having spent a year on the America and West Indies station in HMS Varian Bay. Unlike the river class, work was found after the war for most of the Locke and Bay class. If Plym was the tragic heroine of Operation Hurricane, the grand dam in the drama was the escort carrier HMS Campania. Originally laid down as a merchant ship at Harland and Wolf's Yard in Belfast, she was acquired by the Royal Navy and completed as a small aircraft carrier of some 13,000 tons. She was launched in 1943 and saw service escorting convoys in the Atlantic and Arctic, during which her 18 aircraft attacked enemy submarines and sank at least one. At the end of the war, a large number of warships, including most of the escort carriers, were scrapped or sold off. But Campania, along with the, the large fleet carriers, was spared this fate. She was placed in reserve and then brought out somewhat bizarrely as a traveling expedition, sorry, exhibition site during the Great Festival of Britain in 1951. Painted white, filled with exhibitions and demonstrations of Britain's industrial, technological, and artistic achievements, and manned by a civilian crew, she steamed around the coast of Britain from May to October, calling it a variety of ports such as London, Hull, the Tyne, Aberdeen, Glasgow, Liverpool, and Belfast, in each of which she would spend up to a fortnight, bringing on board to see the show as many people as possible. After this light-hearted phase was over, she went to Birkenhead to be refitted for an altogether more sinister role. Determined to become a nuclear power in her own right, Britain, no longer colluding with the Americans, had set out, employing entirely her own resources to construct a viable bomb. For this purpose, the Admiralty assembled an ill-assorted flotilla comprising Campania, Narvik, Zebruge, and Tracker, and of course, Plym. Campania flew the flag of Rear Admiral Arthur David Torlisse. The other three, all tank landing strip- ships, provided accommodation, stores, and support facilities. Tracker carried in particular medical stores and facilities together with equipment to detect and protect against radioactive matter generated by the bomb. Rear Admiral Torlis was under orders to take his ships to Australia, not through the Mediterranean, which was the obvious route, but with an uh, an atomic bomb on board Plym, the safest and least public route was around the Cape of Good Hope and across the great and largely empty Southern Ocean to Fremantle. And so, for the second time in her short life, Plym came down the Atlantic to South Africa. This time, however, she rounded the Cape and carried on to Australia, destined never to return. The other four ships all came back to the UK, and four years later, Narvik was to return once more to Montebello, where she acted as command ship for Operation Mosaic. At first glance, the Montebello Islands look an ideal spot for the testing of nuclear weapons. As we have seen, they are uninhabited and situated offshore along a stretch of the Australian coast where few people live, with an ocean beyond them stretching, it seems, almost to infinity. Unfortunately, all is not what it is appears. The islands lie on the western side of the Australian continent where the prevailing winds, where the prevailing wind blows from the Indian Ocean onto the shore. Just as the prevailing winds on the western shores of North and South America blow from the Pacific onto the land, and the winds from the Atlantic blow onto the western shores of Europe and Africa. Given that the earth revolves from east to west, it follows that the weather pattern moves in the opposite direction, namely west to east, as we see daily on the TV weather forecasts. Transatlantic air passengers are aware that the flight from America to Europe is quicker than the same journey in the opposite direction because of the tailwind that helps the aircraft along. It was to be expected, therefore, that there would be long periods in which the detonation of a nuclear weapon at Montebello would be inappropriate because of the danger of radioactive matter from the explosion drifting not out to sea as would have been hoped, but onto the shore and across the continent. Well, that has been um, the fourth chapter of the book Guinea Pig Ship. I hope you are all enjoying um, this so far. Uh, This was again entitled The Ships of Montebello. Shorter episode, but I hope you all enjoyed. Um, If you are enjoying the podcast as usual, please give it a follow, a like, and a comment, anything like that really helps out. And until next time, I hope we all have a great day and thank you very much for listening.